There exists a certain dichotomy in animation, at least in the West, that I find a little odd since the basic precepts of animation means that you can do more or less anything with it. Uh, thanks to the basic stranglehold that it, uh, that it had over the industry for basically the entirety of the 20th century, uh, the Disney model is the dominant one. Uh, it has a very lucrative formula that it's exploited in ways that are basically unprecedented. The other side of that coin is a sort of attempted transgression to respond to it. Uh, that, you know, the uh, raunchy adult-style animation, first popularized by Ralph Bakshi's films, but uh, epitomized by South Park and Family Guy. And a lot of people who make movies, at least in the United States, seems to think that those are the only two ways that you can make a cartoon. But there are lots of other options. Today we'll be talking about Fantastic Planet, which I believe is a very singular accomplishment in animation. There isn't anything that's quite like it, I think. And through that we're going to talk about the themes of the film and also how it represents the potentials of animation that have still yet to be accomplished since it came out in 1973. My name is Ryan, this is A Real Deep Dive. Joining me for this episode is uh, Becky Colburns. Hello, say hello. Hello. Now, you seem to be um, split on whether or not you'd actually seen this before. <laughs> it seemed familiar enough that it was like, I might have seen this, or also it might have been some weird tripped out dreams I've had. <laughs> Fantastic Planet does have something of a cult uh, reputation. There's a there's a Criterion edition, but I wouldn't say it's like a household name. Before we go any further, I'm just uh, going to go into the basic plot summary, what this thing's about. Fantastic Planet takes place in an alien world sometime in the future. Uh, the dominant species on this world are known as the Trags. They're giant blue creatures with red eyes and fins on the side of their faces. They spend most of their time uh, astral projecting to a moon where they inhabit the bodies of headless statues, which they then Increase their libido. With, uh, with other mental space travelers throughout the galaxy. Now, after visiting Earth, a planet whose uh, dominant culture had destroyed itself in some kind of apocalyptic cataclysm. Shocking. Yeah, I know. It's yeah, th This came out in the 70s. An invasive species, who are humans, what they call them Oms, have basically infested their world. Now, the Trags don't think that the Oms are um, intelligent or uh, or self-aware. They sort of see them as uh, as animals, uh, pests in most situations. They do keep a, a series of Oms as like pets, make them wear like you know little Faltoroy costumes and have them fight and dance and sing for sport. But most of them, you know, live in the park and they uh, have to go and spray them because the Om breed a lot faster than the Trags. That 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 comes up an awful lot. The central character, his name is Tear. He was orphaned as a baby and then brought up as a pet by a, a young Trag woman. He threw a a um, manufacturing error in his obedience collar is able to get the psychic school lessons that the that his trag owner gets as she's growing up. So he is able to read their language and learn things about their technology without their knowledge. He eventually runs away and joins a uh, wild ohm colony in the woods. And he eventually acclimates their ways after fighting uh, against a head priest champion in a um, sort of gladiatorial combat where he straps this toothed snake to his chest and fights another dude with another snake tied to his chest. 
strap tiny dinosaurs to yourself and use them as weapons. Yeah, that's that that was what that sequence was. Uh, anyways, after the trags spray the park, the humans escape and realize that the trags have just gotten tired of all this on bullshit and they're just going to wipe them all out. However, at that point, he, uh, Terra has been teaching the other Alms uh, about trag science, and they're able to build a rocket and go to the moon that the trags had their aforementioned psychic sex orgies on. Uh, they end up blowing up the uh, headless naked statues. Not my surrogate sex body! Keeps the trags from being able to breed. And at that point, the tracks figure out that the Alms are actually intelligent, and since there's a sort of mutually assured destruction thing going on, they're able to hammer out a peace treaty. Once again, this came out in the 70s. Surprising nobody. Yeah, yeah, we'll be uh, getting into how that thematically relates to certain current events at the time. Okay, the uh, film was co-written and directed by uh, Rene LaRue, and it was written by his partner, uh, Roland Papour. Uh, yes, it was French. However, the French animation industry wasn't really an industry at that point. There had maybe been 12 films produced uh, at that period. So most of the, the actual animating was delegated to a, uh, a Prague studio in then Czechoslovakia, but now, uh, since it's Prague, it was the Czech Republic. It wasn't uh, traditionally animated because, you know, budget. They basically took paper cutouts and sort of move them around in stop motion. This is uh, very comparable to, say, uh, Terry Gilliam's intersketch title sequences in uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus. And also the uh, first episode of South Park was done that way. Yes, uh, since this is a Western European film, uh, it has a degree of casual nudity that seems novel to uh, Western audiences. Yeah, and giant blue track titties everywhere. <laughs> uh, there's a definite degree of a surrealist background in this film. A lot of the landscapes are intentionally very alien-looking. Um, there's a sort of Salvador Dali vibe going on, dream logic. Sometimes crystals just manifest, and you can shatter them by whistling at them. Give a little whistle. <laughs> And they're like, you know, invented monsters that attack, seek out prey, and torture other small animals for, for fun. Yeah, yeah, sometimes it just feels arbitrary. Yeah, there's a there's a very long sequence where an Ohm village is attacked by this sort of winged bat monster that has a tongue kind of like an anteater. It like burrows into the Ohm compound and just sort of licks them up. But uh, they're able to use a series of grappling hooks and spears to kill it, and then they have a kind of a religious blood ritual under its corpse after it's dead. Becky, you have a sort of a background in theater and, in general, just good with your hands. I thought that might have a that might bring you some perspective on just how the animation was done. Yes, not only is it just cutouts that they have to, you know, arrange stop motion style, but they also, you know, it looks very handmade besides that. There's all these hatching. Sometimes it just looks like woodcut drawings or just moving around. Yeah, artistry behind, on top of the, the paper things. Like, that took a while to draw. Yeah, that's probably the most striking element of the film to me and probably a lot of other people. It's just like, that's, it's almost never done that way. Yeah, another thing that people bring up often with it is the uh, is the score, which is probably the most 70s thing about it. <laughs> 
It was composed by uh, experimental ja- uh, jazz pianist Alain Gorargi. By the way, I'm very sorry. I'm mangling all this French, just mangling it. And it's kind of uh, a sort of psychedelic jazz funk progressive type of vibe going on there's a there's a lot of mellotron and harpsichord and glowing sex oh yes uh during the scene where all the ohms ingest these fruits that turn them into glow that makes them glow and shimmer they they go hide under bushes and roots with their selected partner and have sex and like as soon as they are they start taking off their clothes just just big old saxophone solo just rolls right in. <laughs> and yes, whenever whenever you're whenever you're threatening to forget that this movie came out in the 70s, there's a wah-wah guitar that just some chicken scratch funk at you. Not only for the sexy bits, but, you know, for the violent bits or the, hey, let's look at the sky, and then suddenly that just happens. All right, the film was fairly well received when it was released. It uh, got a special jury prize at the 1973 Cannes Film Festival, which it brags about uh, right as it begins. That being said, it you know barely got an American release because we're filthy Philistines who hate subtitles. I mean, subtitles if it's not weird anime porn or anything. <laughs> Otherwise, subtitles are terrible. <laughs> There are a lot of things to pick apart in the film subtext, just based on the plot description. I'm guessing you can pick up on a couple of them. A lot of people bring up animal rights. I mean, that whole movie, like, everyone's terrible to their pets, regardless of what kind of pet it is. Yeah, even if you're, even if you're, you know, pro-ohm, at least in owning them in your house, you're still making them put on, like, Renaissance Fair costumes and dance and maul each other for their amusement. Mm-hmm. There's a group of drag children who decide to have the alms fight by, like, have, tying their hair together and having them wrestle. Wrestle! They, they make them wear, like, fruit strike uh, gum wrappers while they're doing it. There's, there's a very amusing scene, like, after Tear um, finally escapes... And the wild, the wild, accepted into yeah, the wild ohm are deciding whether or not they're going to give him a shot. And he's just, he's just standing there in his, in, in, in his frippery costume. And <laughs> they're all just laughing at his romper suit. Uh, another point that is often brought up is uh, racism because yeah. it's. Is it a race or is it a speciesism thing? Like well, at the time in 1973, there was still like living memory of people who thought that, you know, having darker skin than other persons made them a different species. To use one of maybe a million examples, when uh, Tasmania was colonized by the British, they took on a um, apartheid with the intention of genocide policy to it because they used junk science that theorized that the Tasmanian aborigines were part ape. And this wasn't all that long ago, not in the grand scheme of things. In 1973, there were people alive who still felt that way, and some of them held the levers of power. And, yeah, people used it to bring parallels to, say, apartheid in South Africa, the American Civil Rights Movement, both of which were still going on or still in very recent contentious memory. The conduct of the French in Algeria was apparently a direct reference. French audiences saw the parallels right away. They're too obscure for me to pick up, but apparently they're there. Looking at the contemporary reviews, not only are those things mentioned, but um, I, I, I kept reading the word eerie 
that's another thing that distinguishes it from a lot of other animated films is that um, while there are sometimes heavy themes and, you know, say the Disney films or an episode of South Park, they both try to use humor and musical numbers to cut through that. And uh, Fantastic Planet, don't give a fuck. <laughs> I feel a little embarrassed just discussing like animal rights and racism as if these are like hidden theories because no, it's they're not. They're beating you over the head with it. I'm uncomfortable now. <laughs> That's another thing. A lot of critics mentioned that they were indeed quite uncomfortable <laughs> watching the film. There was a part where um, Tear walks in at a bunch of adult trags oh, like yeah. mind communing and their bodies yeah. literally melt into yeah, each other. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I I was kind of expecting you to just look at me and go what why the hell are you making me watch this uh you, you you lasted a bit longer than i thought you were what the actual fuck is going on over here why weird mind slingers party in the hallway and also whenever they would just go on to like an episodic foray into the natural world where the monsters came out and it was kind of like the uh the sea of bees sequence from yellow submarine except except sadder yeah once again early 70s the film does very much play into uh, the psychedelic atmosphere that, you know, dominated late 60s culture and still hadn't dissipated by that time. One other motif to bring up that is slightly less obvious than the animal rights and the racism stuff would probably be just the Cold War, which defines almost every film made during that era and the few decades in front of and behind it. But between that, like, the, the, the sequence where the ohms are going to destroy the tragged sex orgy planet. <laughs> yeah, that one's... Yeah, and um, it's sort of juxtaposed with all the various efficient ohm-killing weapons that are being unleashed upon the wild ohms on the home world. The uh, entire principles of mutually assured destruction were, you know, it's, it's not subtle during that period. It's throughout... It's prevalent throughout, but it's especially hammered in there. And it should be noted that this is during a period where uh, the United States and Russia were entering into stalled negotiations that were referred to as detente, which is, you know, a French word, weirdly enough. Of course, concerns about nuclear proliferation peaked um, in the early 80s, just before uh, just before the fall of, you know, the Berlin Wall and uh, the Soviet Union in general. But consciousness just sort of went up and down during that period. We're just talking 50 consecutive years of nuclear paranoia. Not that it's gone now, but we seem less worried about it for some reason. We're dumb. And, and hence, in this environment, Fantastic Planet is more relevant than ever. <laughs> Yeah, where's the trags? Where are they now? I'm calling them trags. Once again, probably butchering it. I'm I'm very sorry. I took two and a half years of French in high school, and I remember none of it. Okay, I believe that covers uh, everything that I wanted to talk about with Fantastic Planet. Is there um is there anything we haven't touched upon that you would like to add? All right. So these fuckers are forty feet tall, or thereabouts. That said in the beginning, and. The, the ohms are human size and it's like what would i do if at one point i saw a 40 foot creature coming to take me as a pet i'd probably shit myself and then be like wow that is that's a big freaking beast there <laughs> yeah the uh, the very first sequence in the film is just like this human mother with her ch with her baby just trying to run away from the giant blue hand that just keeps flicking her yeah, it's just just a close up on a bunch of a bunch of children just torturing bugs. I was just like trying to 
trying to comprehend something of that size. Fucking with me. Like, it's just... <laughs> For a moment, I thought you were going to bring actual physics into it. And it was like, you know, uh, you know, we can have Mr. Scientist come in and be like, oh, yeah, 40-foot humanoid monsters can't possibly exist in the real world. And it's like, just the one scene where they were the, the frag person with... What's his tear? The one who had the pet. Yeah, the, the main... Like, the, taking his clothes off and stuff. I'm like, that like that would be hard to do without killing him. <laughs> oh, yeah. At one point, you're like, who cuts his hair and yeah. how? <laughs> well, there is one bit where they where they conjure the obedience co- caller. It's kind of like this, you know, Star Trek matter transmogrifying <laughs> device. And like, maybe flash. it's there. We're going to put you in this little hole and it's going to flash and squeal horribly. And then things that we want show up. Yes, it's much louder than Star Trek. Star Trek's more polite. Okay, well, uh, if that's everything, I guess that concludes the episode. Thanks for joining me, Becky. I kind of sprang this one on you because nobody else wanted to do it. (laughs) Uh, Good night, everybody.